and welcome to Talking Aussie Books, a weekly podcast bringing readers and writers of Australian fiction together. I'm Claudine Tanellis. As an avid reader and passionate advocate for Australian fiction, I make it my mission to spotlight local talent. So if you're looking for your next read or simply want to learn more about the Australian literary scene, this podcast is for you. Grab yourself a cuppa, sit back and relax. Listeners, just over four years ago now, I had the very great fortune to interview an outstanding debut novelist. I was relatively new to the world of podcasting then, still finding my way and consequently feeling like I'd won the lottery when I was handed the opportunity to speak with this brilliant author. Listeners, I know you'll feel my joy and nerves in equal measures when I tell you that author was Holly Ringland, the much celebrated creator of the worldwide phenomenon that was and still is The Lost Flowers of Alice Hart, published by HarperCollins. Once I'd recovered from my terror, speaking to Holly, who was in England at the time, became a conversation I would never forget. It was overwhelming to speak with this incredible woman who has become an inspirational figure for women and writers around the globe. And to my utter amazement, today I get to do it all again. This time in honour of Holly's newly released second novel, The Seven Skins of Esther Wilding. And I'm delighted and more than a little honoured to welcome Holly back to the podcast today. Hi, Holly. Hi, Claudine. (laughs) It's so nice to be back here with you. I barely coped with that beautiful introduction. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. (laughs) It's my pleasure and so very well deserved. Thank you for being here with me today and my most heartfelt congratulations on another stunning book in The Seven Skins of Esther Welding. Thank you so much. God, that I will never hear anything about my writing like that without it hitting me square in the chest. It, It means so much. Thank you. Holly, Given the phenomenal success of The Lost Flowers of Alice Hart, I wondered if you had concerns or reservations about writing a second novel. I mean, did you suffer with the dreaded second novel syndrome many debut novelists fear? I've got to try and remember not to swear, Claudine. I can edit it out, don't worry. (laughs) Look, the short answer is absolutely. Because it's the way that the world is made. If you make something or offer something to the world, and to everyone's surprise, most of all your own, perhaps, it's a success, as was the case with Lost Flowers. When I wrote that novel, I hoped one publisher, genuinely hand on my heart, this is not false modesty, I hoped one publisher would think that it wasn't shit and that it would be published and would maybe open the door for me to do a bit more writing. Mm. And then once it was published, there's the next level of, oh, God, I hope one reader doesn't think it's shit. The very last thing that I ever thought that would be possible with my first novel is that I would one day find myself standing on the television set of that novel watching Sigourney Weaver walk past me in costume dressed as somebody that I made up. I don't know if I will ever be able to process it. It is something that I am awed by every day. And so when that happens to your debut novel, how do you write a second one when it seems like at some point in the world, even going to Woolies, the staff on the checkout are like, hi, how are you going? Good luck with the second novel. You know, like (laughs) it just, I mean, nobody in Woolies actually said that to me, of course, but it felt like it was such a common conversation being had around me that it was happening even in small talk is what I mean by that example. And so if I go back a little bit to 2017 when 
I had signed with Catherine Milne, the beautiful Catherine Milne, the brilliant Catherine Milne at HarperCollins as my publisher. And I had submitted nearly the last draft of Lost Flowers and I was in the beginning, the very early stirrings of noticing that a new story was tugging on my sleeves for attention. And maybe we'll talk about that separately when we talk about Esther. So I'll put that story of the new story to the side. But more to say that once I became aware that my mind and my imagination had started to stir up the gold dust again, I remember really clearly in 2017 thinking about second novel syndrome air quotes and thinking about how much I was not interested in letting fear of that pressure into the driver's seat and I think the place that that gut-driven determination came from is and I think we might even have talked about this in our podcast that we did together those four years ago for Alice Hart that I was it took me till I was 34 to fulfill what I've known about myself since I was three, which is how old I was when my mum taught me to read. And I turned around and said to her, I just, I want to be a writer, mum. I want to be an author. And it took me 31 years to take that seriously and to try because as I've been open about, I lived a lot of my past under the trauma and tyranny and control of male perpetrated violence, which is where the genesis of writing Alice Hart came from. And so the reason I bring that up and say that is that after I had written and completed a draft of Alice Hart and a publisher had bought it and I knew it was going to be turned into a book and I felt skinless every day about that reality, I had a a strength that was new to me inside of myself and was quite reflective. And when I was about 10, Claudine, my favourite band and still my first true love and favourite band is Pearl Jam. So I'm going to delight in quoting Pearl Jam now in a heavy, philosophical, deeply emotional conversation about writing (laughs) and the craft. But there is a Pearl Jam song called Wasted and the lyrics are, I've tasted a life wasted and I'm never going back again. And that that the idea of that, what that is communicating, is what was my body was full of this day in 2017 when I noticed, you know, inherent behaviour in me that was trauma-informed was to fret, was to make myself small because if I made myself small, I was safe. And I noticed all of those feelings firing up when a second novel came calling. And as I said, I had this sense of strength rise up to meet those feelings. And I thought about that Pearl Jam song and I said to myself, listen, if we are going to be lucky, I talked to myself in the we, it's like team, team Holly, it's the we. Maybe I'm addressing the inner critic and the inner fan. Like there's a whole little club there that we're going to, that I, that I address when I have these conversations with myself. <laughs> and I kind of said to myself, if we're going to be lucky enough to write more than this, then I am not squandering a second of it, writing from a place of fear and pressure. 
I am going to promise myself that I will write from the place that I have known about in my body and my being since I was three, which is how much I love stories and how much I love books. And if I write from that place, I'll write something true. But if I write under fear of pressure and if I write under fear of doubting myself, I won't write something true. I will write just my fears onto the page. So that was the promise I made myself in 2017. Of course, being an imperfect human, I didn't always keep that promise to myself. And with an unruly monkey mind, there were days that the fear and the pressure were absolutely there, particularly because I wrote this novel at the in the second half of 2020 through 2022. And that's been the collectively hardest part of our lifetimes, you know, as a as a human race. So I definitely felt the pressure. It was absolutely there. And I constantly met it and managed it with this knowing and that strength that I promised myself to maintain five years ago as I started to dream Esther's story into being. Yeah, you've touched on what I wanted to ask you about next, but I wanted to say mm. that I was I was lucky enough to meet you in person at the Stanton Library in North Sydney early <gasps> last month on what was potentially one of the wettest days Sydney has seen in an apparently long it was. time. Apparently it was like the wettest day in Sydney's history. I'm like, excellent, a biblical flood at lunchtime for us all to get together and talk about women in water. Perfect. <laughs> yeah, probably <laughs> prophetic in many ways. But I remember hearing you talk about the difficulties around writing this book, much of which came down to, as you mentioned, COVID and, and travel restrictions. So I wondered <clears> if you could tell us a little bit more about that and how you overcame these obstacles. Yeah, absolutely. It was, um, you know, and speaking about this with full awareness of the varying degrees and contexts to which everybody has suffered over the last few years and full empathy and awareness for people who have lost loved ones and livelihoods and you know every every way that COVID has disrupted our lives. For me I uh, work-wise because I'm in an incredibly fortunate position at this point in my life where writing is my full-time job at the moment. And so what that meant is in December 2019, I unwittingly, remember then, Claudine, when we were all young and innocent? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's I, a distant memory, but yeah. A distant, a, a distant memory, those, those golden days. I, my mind was blown to bits of confetti because HarperCollins offered me a two-book deal and I thought that through very carefully, again, on the pressure front. Because I thought to myself, you know, while two book deals are very exciting, is am I creating, am I committing myself to pressure there? And I thought about it really carefully and decided ultimately that this is, you know, if I am lucky enough to be a career writer for however long I can be in my life, this is kind of everything that I have asked for is a publisher to believe in me, to support me, to say, we want two more novels from you. Let's do it. So uh, unwittingly, in December of 2019, I rationalised that I had the time and the space to both film Back to Nature, which happened in 2020, and to write my second novel. So I signed away, signed my life away. 
And then, of course, we know what happened. 2020 came. I was incredibly lucky to be at home in Australia when it happened because I've lived between the UK and Australia for the last 10 years. My partner, Sam, is British. I met him when I moved to England in 2009, completely disinterested in ever speaking to a heterosexual man ever again. And along comes the kindest man on feet. So that completely blew everything out of the window. Sam and I came home end of 2019. We started making Back to Nature at the beginning of 2020. I had plans to return to the UK because I had a month-long trip to Copenhagen booked for research for my second novel and a month-long trip to the Faroe Islands booked after that, which I was going to do in the Northern Hemisphere summer of 2020. I was so excited about doing that research, I mean, you know, and I had been gathering since 2017, I'd been gathering research for Esther in my writing office in Manchester. So the piles of books and um, cutouts and feathers and twigs and lichen and all of the inspiration fodder that I was gathering for Esther became so large that, you know, we had to do the, the nifty trip to Ikea and get a, a set of bookshelves to pop all of my gatherings onto and have a, a place for so that I'm a very visual person and creatively, if I can see what I'm gathering, I know from experience that that inspires more ideas to spark. Yeah. All of which is to say that that bookshelf of inspiration is still in England, untouched. Those books have not been opened. There is a desk, there is a, a note sitting on my desk still waiting for me that says, You can do it. Esther believes in you. She needs you to live. The trip to Copenhagen and the Faroes obviously got cancelled. Uh, Sam and I have not gone back to the UK. We've been living in Australia since 2019, very luckily to be able to do so. Side note, living with my darling parents, exactly how you imagine midlife <laughs> to be with your partner. And it became really clear in the mid-half of 2020 that all of my best laid plans, no matter how much work I had done on you know, I can only control what I can control, no matter how much work I'd done on my psyche to step out of post-traumatic stress from past life stuff. That was a really confronting challenge to think that the novel that I had been tending to, the, the research garden I had been growing was on the other side of the world. I couldn't get back to it. I couldn't take the research trips that I had planned and I had signed a legally binding contract to create something that did not have a disclaimer saying, Holly can have five years off if there's a pandemic. In the event of a pandemic, Holly gets to get out of jail free card. Not to mention that the deepest gut feeling that I had about myself as a writer then was that I am not somebody who can write a place or a landscape unless I have walked lightly on that ground with my own two feet, seen it with my own eyes, sniffed it, felt the air on my skin, met locals, heard their stories, felt culture, listened to country, listened to country talk back to me through waves and birdsong and trees or lack of trees. And I was just right up against it. It was, you know, all of our minds were taking an onslaught of information and Spike in 
anxiety and fear and uncertainty at that point and the concept of trying to hope to be hopeful about um, escaping into imagination in terms of oh you know um, I'll just I'll just try and focus on the book and throw myself into that you know I didn't bake a loaf of sourdough Claudine I faced like writing a new novel and I just really got to the point where I thought I can't do this I I and I rang Catherine my publisher and I said to her you know see I think I might have to I might have to think about it and pitch you a different story one that I can I can walk into and wear the skin of and know the land of because I'd been to Tasmania and I had been to Copenhagen, but I'd never been to the Faroes. And that was the part that really felt that undid me. And Catherine and I might have spoken about this. I can't remember at the event we did where you and I finally got to meet in person. But Catherine, you know, was so understanding and empathetic and she made all the right noises. Yes, Holly. Mm. Oh, God, this is hard. Painful. Yes, no, God, agony. Mm-hmm. And she said to me, you know, let's like sleep on it. You know, this idea of do you pitch me something else? Let's sleep on it and let's, let's see what comes in the next few days. And the next day my phone pinged and there was no text message. It was just a link to a podcast. And the title of the podcast was like Amy Tan, you know, globally best-selling author of the Joy Luck Club speak about how she made up a landscape that she'd never visited <laughs> and how she'd written a time frame that she can never go to because it's historical fiction. And I, I and like Catherine didn't she didn't even drop a love heart, an emoji, a kiss. It was just this link that came at me. And I was sort of, you know, out in the paddock feeding the ducks because my parents live on acreage on Yugan Bear land. And I I looked at my phone and I was like, nice one. And then the next day I got another link, you know, another gargantuan author talks about a place that they made up in their best-selling novel that they never got to go to. But the outcome of that was a reminder of how incredibly powerful belief and encouragement are in a writer's life. And with Catherine's belief in me at my back I and, and the support of my family and my partner Sam, I sort of pushed up my my you know, metaphoric arm sleeves, if you like. And I thought, okay, the Bronte sisters wrote novels without Google. So if they could do it without Google, I can use Google <laughs> and I can, I can do this. And so I, I just started reaching out. I, I did really concerted research on Google because the internet is just a quagmire if you're not focused. And I found Faroese artists and writers and I wrote to them and I put call outs on Twitter asking for people to help me if they knew anything that I needed to know about the islands and people responded. People so kindly responded and it was incredibly heartwarming and moving during the time as well because we were all locked down and shut down. And I kind of wrote to people in the Faroes sort of saying, Hi, um I'm a writer in Australia and I'm not unhinged, but I, um, I'm i writing my second novel and I can't get there because the world literally is closed. Um, 
and this incredible Faroese artist and writer named Raquel Helmsdale, she, she responded to my email and she said, I would absolutely love to help you. So you let me know when you have questions I can answer or something, you know, concrete I can do for you. And she did. She was one of my sensitivity readers of the novel and she um, gave me the, the gold treasure local knowledge of the Faroe Islands. And, I mean, the last thing I will say, Claudine, considering myself as one of this legion, but God bless the geeks in this world. <laughs> God bless the people who film driving onto ferries in the Faroe Islands and upload it to YouTube with like soundtracks and little subtitles because they think someone's going to find it interesting because yeah. I am that person yeah. who watched their videos of <laughs> driving onto the ferry and I watched them on repeat, their little travel blogs, and then saying, yes, it was a 36-minute um, ferry ride to Kalsoy. And I'm like, right, Esther was on the ferry for 36 minutes to get to Kalsoy. And the people that love planes, the people that are like, now I am filming my trip from Copenhagen to Torshavn in the Faroe Islands. Here is what they served me on my flight. And I'm like, Esther ate the packet of peanuts on sort of Faroe Islands air. Like, <laughs> This, I, the, the geeks in the world saved my life writing this book, honestly. And the rest was just willing myself to remember what it was like to be to places with similar climates, yeah. to be in places like I've been lucky enough to be in Connemara in Ireland on the West Coast that has very few trees, just like the Faroe Islands. And so that sense of sea spray and the colours of lichen on rock and the way the wind blows when there are no trees to, you know, I just, that's the power of where the imagination met the Googling. So it was, it really tested me. And what an incredible gift to be given by the act of doing something you can't do to be proven wrong about yourself. Very humbling. I love that. And yes, I do remember you saying that. <laughs> that story about your correspondence with Catherine about your oh research it's hilarious yes but at the time I can imagine it would have been somewhat sobering it was very anxiety inducing you know also because self-doubt and fear need very few snacks to get the party going yeah and when you're on the other side of the world from all of the research that you've been gathering you know those forces in my mind were like see you can't yeah. do it you can't possibly do this so putting those voices where they belong, in the back of the car, not in the driver's seat, is also always a very empowering practice. Indeed. Well, you did do it. And I Thank have to you. say that The Seven Skins of Esther Wilding was an astonishing novel with many layers of complexity and lyricism, combining myths and legends with story of women overcoming fear and oppression of loss and grief. So I wondered, Holly, could you tell us more about the story and how the idea first came to you? That's so beautiful. Thank you. That's so beautiful for me to hear. I only, I mean, I worked like calamity to get this book to print for it to come out in October this year. So the, the gap between going to print on the novel and doing publicity and talking about it has only been like two months. 
it still feels a little bewildering that we're not talking about a Microsoft Word document that I've emailed you and been like, hey, do you want to like read my thing? Like the fact that it's actually like I'm picking up a novel now, the fact that we can hold it and it exists bewilders me somewhat. So that's really beautiful to hear, Claudine. Thank you. I wanted to write about joy. That was that was the one thing I knew setting out to write this story, particularly after writing Lost Flowers. You know, I've said this a few times in the last month when I've been talking about Esther because it's a realisation that has become truer and truer for me with more reflection and processing, which is that writing Alice Hart, like I was saying before, it's the story I needed to get out of my body onto the page. And writing it, I didn't realise that one of the effects of writing it would be how it felt like it cleaned my my blood. Yeah. It, it cleansed me of something that had been heavy and hot and beautiful and painful to carry for so long. So writing Esther Wilding, I wanted to write about Esther allowing herself to feel joy but I realized within the very first chapter of writing the very first chapter that to write about joy for me means writing about grief because they are two sides of the one coin and I know from lived experience that if I try and numb myself to grief I numb myself to true connection and real joy because True connection is real joy, even if we are connecting with somebody about shared pain, shared shame, fear. You know, it's the connection that is the joy. And once I realized that, I thought, okay, this is going to be a story about a woman who is going to try and find her way beyond grief back to herself through allowing herself to feel both grief and joy and to experience the transformation that comes when we give ourselves that permission. But then, of course, I wanted to write about what I love and I love the way that we tell stories. So the book is full of women and their tattoos as a form of storytelling. I love the power and metaphor of mythologies and fairy tales. So the novel is full of feminine mythologies and, and the stories of a Scandinavian fairy tale writer who really lived named Helena Nyblom, who should be known the world over, and she isn't, and other women artists like Hilma F. Clint. And I wanted to write about what shame and fear steals from us and what vulnerability and connection and love and joy gives us. So from the first chapter, even though Esther is grieving, throughout the whole novel, there is raucous, absurd joy, even particularly if Esther can't see it. In the first chapter, when she comes into a bit of trouble and the person that comes to her aid is her one of her oldest family friends who is dressed head to toe as Mad Max era Tina Turner. <laughs> you know, it's the joy that comes from shared humanity as well. So. Esther started with all of those motivations and throwing in all the things I love and the things that I had learned from filming Back to Nature about the power of 
country and ancestral connection and how that is something universal that we all share. And drawing on my own ancestral connection coming from Celtic and Scandinavian people. So it really is a cauldron of all of those things. Picking up on tattoos as a way of storytelling, Aura's journal documents the stories that she eventually has tattooed on her skin. And the tattoos Mm. form a strong thread right throughout the narrative, a way, as you said, for women in the novel to tell their own stories by wearing what's inside their hearts on their skin. I wondered if you could tell me more about this and why you wanted to explore this in the context of the novel. I think the truest answer is that I was dazzled by the experience of getting my own tattoo at 35 and it had such a profound effect on me psychologically that I I was constantly thinking about it with awe and wonder. And then after Lost Flowers was published, readers started contacting me with photos of their tattoos that they had gotten of native flowers and their meanings from the novel because of what those meanings and Alice Part's story meant to them. So I was completely mind-blown that my first novel, I should have said, I got at 35 because I had an agent, I'd signed with a literary agent, but I had no idea of Alice Hart's fate as a story and as a book. And I decided I had never wanted to get a tattoo. It just had never occurred to me as a desire. It just wasn't a desire in me. And I wrote the manuscript and I completed and had this novel, this, you know, as yet, unedited, imperfect novel that existed. And this was the thing that I spent decades of my youth thinking I wasn't good enough or smart enough to ever do. And I feared through my 20s into my 30s that being a writer would be the thing I would carry all my life and would be the song I would die with still unsung in my body. To have that story written in this imperfect tangible thing it was like I woke up one day and all I could think about was I need that on my skin I need Alice's story on my skin because Alice's story is my story and what we make of pain drawing beauty out of pain making joy out of pain that connects with others it had it was so important to me and meant so much to me that I, all I could think about was I have to get a tattoo. Yeah. It, I, I, need, I need that revealed on my skin. I need to wear it on my body. So it felt very much like instead of getting ink put on my body, I was instead getting something revealed so that I could wear my heart on my skin, so that I could see it. I could self-decorate. I could take this body that belongs to me And is not defined by anything other than my relationship with this physical body. It's not what men have done to it. It's not the scars that are left on my skin from violent actions done to me. It's not defined by those things. I can self-decorate and adorn my own body with the stories and the art of my choosing. The power of doing that and then of readers going and getting their own tattoos inspired by Alice Hart. It was, it was just omniscient in my brain that writing about women and tattoos 
in this way that I had come to understand being tattooed myself was absolutely an integral part of Esther Wilding's story and specifically a powerful way of women owning their bodies and through that act of ownership telling their stories. So it was a a complete and powerful delight writing that part of this book. It was such a strong thread right throughout the novel Thank from you. you know from Esther's mum to her cousin in Copenhagen and, yes. and even Sophus's mum in the Faroe Islands. I mean, you know, it was just yes. it just ran through all the women in this story and I just found that so incredibly powerful. I'm so glad. Thank yeah. you. So let's talk fairy tales and legends for a moment. As you said, that was something that you were passionate about and you you know you wanted to pour into this story. Many of the tales that Aura documents in her journal are about Selkies, about mm. women who shed their skins to become mortal. Was this something you've always wanted to explore in your writing and why? I don't know that I it's not that I've always wanted to explore Selkie stories. It's more that it feels to me and I know to many that Fairy tales and myths contain so many archetypal keys when we read them that our soul somehow recognises. We recognise the metaphor in fairy tales that are as old as storytelling is and myth. We recognise metaphors in them that are mirrors for our own lived experience. And we're not talking, of course, the Disney reworkings. We're talking about the way that stories have all been told to warn and guide us, filled with, uh, you know, magic, filled with the unreal, filled with imagination. But at the core of them all are deeply human and relevant experiences to our relationships with ourselves and each other and to the natural world. So I have always been besotted with folklore and fairy tales, just like so many other people. And as I explored in Alice Hart with the way the stories we tell ourselves about the lives we are living can either entrap us and keep us stuck or they can free us if we are brave enough to tell ourselves the truth a truthful story about what our truth is and what we're living with Esther Wilding I really wanted to explore what happens with a love of fairy tales when we rely on them to communicate for us and rely on them to allow us a sense of feeling seen, which is what Esther's older sister Aura does with the seven stories or seven skins that she relies on in the novel to communicate her story to the world because she can't verbalise it herself. It's too painful, it's too poignant, it's too beautiful. It's too hard to say in words. And the amazing thing about ageless stories in the world is how interconnected they are. And once I started looking at the ways women and water 
were represented in mythologies and fairy tales from Scandinavia, but also in cultural creation stories like in uh, Pakana, Tasmanian Aboriginal people in Latruisa in Tasmania. The relationship between women and water has existed as long as any other story has. And the dots started to connect as I started researching these stories. And once I gathered seven, they started to have a dialogue with themselves. They started to illuminate themselves. And I still don't fully understand or can articulate the power of stories, but they are a live thing. We read them to life and then they start talking to each other. So working with Helena Nyblon's fairy tales, as I mentioned, there are three of her fairy tales in this novel and they are the three most cautionary moralistic stories that she wrote at the turn of the century about how women are entrapped and punished for having desire and a desire for freedom and a desire for sensuality I think it was one of the most rewarding parts of writing this novel was working with these old stories and interweaving them with my novel of this time this year in trying to unravel the mystery behind her sister's death I think it's fair to say that Esther undergoes a transformation of her own and when we meet her she's a complete mess she's dropped out of uni she's working in hospitality drinking and avoiding her family and she's Mm. holding on to a lot of grief isn't she so much but she won't look at the fact that she is because to look at it is too painful yeah and so she just continues to make choices that she knows somewhere deep on some deep level she knows that it's going to blow her life up and continue to blow her life up but the alternative of actually taking a square look at things of addressing the things that are too hard to say, it's more painful than the mistakes. So it gets to the point where the mistakes that she's making in her life are more familiar and safe than the unknowable, like quantifying future of naming what she's feeling and trying to take agency of her life. I could sit here and try and tell you that I didn't draw on my own experience of being a red-hot mess in my 20s. Claudine, but we all know that that's not true. <laughs> but it, I, I was, I was um, setting out knowing that I wanted to write Esther into joy right from the first chapter. The thing about joy and grief too, from what I've read about these emotions and the way that we approach them and the research that I've done into things like self-compassion and how we hold ourselves through making mistakes and through doing things that aren't the best for us, is that it's about contrast. We can't know the vast capacity we have for joy and the power of joy to the same degree as if we don't allow ourselves to feel grief go through us in its fullness, to let it come, to let it hurt, like talking hell, (laughs) and to let it keep going and come back and keep going and come back. And so thinking about that, 
really inspired me and made me realize that in my discussions with Catherine about Esther, when she sort of said to me, in my first draft, I was a bit too easy on Esther mm. in the first third of the book. And Catherine's like, you're letting her off the hook. Mm. You're being too easy on her. And she's like, and I said, are you kidding? Look, she's lost her big sister. Like, I don't want to make her go through anything else. And Catherine has this way of looking at you with this wily twinkle in her eye that impales you and goes straight through you and lands exactly where the truth needs to land. And she's like, what were you like with grief and joy in your 20s? And I'm like, oh, that's low. That's <laughs> low, low. But it, but it was true because for Esther to feel the weight and power, the power of vulnerability and connection and joy and, and having your own back, to appreciate that, that permission that we can give ourselves to feel those things. It's so much more powerful if she's also allowed herself to acknowledge the depth of the other end of the spectrum. It's really interesting too to notice readers' responses because Everybody, I mean, readers have shown up for me with this book. I'm in tears, moved to tears daily by the love people are feeling for this story, which I don't allow myself to think about what I'm writing it while I'm writing it because it, it, uh, you're in such a fragile headspace to write it that to think about Esther being outside of just this little place where it's me and her is too much for my mind. On the other side of that, now that readers are reading her and embracing her, as I said, it moves me to tears. And I find it really fascinating if people are kind enough to take the time to write a review or something online. And I don't go looking for reviews. That's a staple rule. But people will tag me on social media. And, you know, my social media is me. Like I'm a team of one person. <laughs> So if somebody tags me in something, I will, you know, wake up with my coffee and I might open Instagram and whether I like it or not, for better or worse, something I've been tagged in will be waiting there. But with Esther, people have, you know, it's been beautiful and it's been really interesting when people take the time to write a review and they say something like, um, you know, Esther really pissed me off for the first <laughs> third of the novel, you know, for example. And I find that fascinating because I wonder what it is that we recognise in, you know, forgetting for a second that it's a fictional character. But the thing about grief and joy is that it's a universal thing that none of us get through being alive without experiencing. And if somebody is bumbling along making bad choices because they're trying to do their best in their world with grief, it's so interesting how the 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 hot chestedness that I felt writing it, readers can also feel reading it because I, this is not like a science fiction novel. These are experiences that we all have. Not to say that science fiction, you know, I'm a huge yeah. Star Wars, Lord <laughs> of the Rings, everything fantasy <laughs> fan. Yeah. But you know, this is a a novel about really going through those emotions. Just quickly, I was going to say I'm about to head off to Tasmania and specifically we'll be spending some time in Binalong Bay, a place oh. that is integral to this story. I couldn't believe it yes. when I opened up the pages. Now, I'd never actually heard of 
is it marina shells yeah there's marina or marina there's two pronunciations so okay yeah and they live amongst um the kelp that that can be found in tasmanian waters so i was wondering if you could tell me a little bit more about them and their significance to this story so in it might have been january or february of 2020 i went to an exhibition at the Queensland Art Gallery in Brisbane, and there was an exhibition on called Water. And uh, I was very much in the, again, it was January 2020, we had no idea what was coming. So I was very much in the gathering, I'll take this back to England, to my office kind of phase. And I went to this exhibition because the GOMA in Brisbane, they do such an incredible, they do such incredible work with their exhibitions where they just, give us the opportunity, they give, you know, patrons that go to the exhibition such an incredible opportunity to explore themes through such diverse artists. And I was struck by the 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 art there was so immersive, told from so many different perspectives and voices, many of which were women's. And there was this flow building feeling as I went through this exhibition of how primal our connection to water is, particularly salt water. And uh, lots of awareness of, of course, climate crisis and the oceans warming. And all of this was swirling in my mind and thinking about Esther and, and you know, this sister relationship with Aura and that deep love that feels ancient and everlasting and, and then the other places in the world, the novel is set, Copenhagen and the Pharaohs. So all of this is swirling. And I knew that I wanted to set Esther and Aura's story in Lutruwissa, in Tasmania. It was a loose idea at the time with a, with a huge interest in the incredible flora and fauna there and the history and culture of the island from First Nations people. But I had not ever heard about women and their unbroken cultural art practice of shell stringing until I walked around the corner in this exhibition and there was nobody in this low-lit room. There was a video playing of a young Aboriginal girl in a river and to the side there was a low-lit cabinet, a perspex cabinet, and I was in this room alone with the sound of this young woman splashing in river water and her narration. And I looked at this cabinet and inside the cabinet were these strands of glowing shells. And I had to blink a few times in the low light because I didn't understand what I was seeing. They glowed as if they were lit up from the inside. And I walked, I was drawn towards the cabinet And I looked at them and I read the little card and they were made by an artist and a shell stringer named Lola Greeno. And, Claudine, I don't remember anything about the exhibition after that moment. I I finished walking through the exhibition and I'm sure I took notes in my phone and my notebook and I took photos, but I made a beeline for the museum gift shops so far because I wanted to see if those shell necklaces, if there were books about them, if there were actual necklaces there in the cabinet. And that was one of the most, it felt like one of the most profound, and if you believe in coincidence or otherwise, moments of my research. 
because it blew, it blew up in my mind and created my learning and my ed- education about Tasmanian Aboriginal women, their relationship to the sea and seals, and most of all through Lola Greeno's Kanalaritja is the word in Palawakani, which is the Tasmanian Aboriginal language. Kanalaritja is shell stringing. And through Lola Greeno's Kanalaritja, I learned about all the rest of the women artists who practice this incredible art of creating iridescent, glowing shell necklaces through a cultural process of removing the outer brown layer of the shell to reveal the iridescence underneath. And this is a cultural art practice that women have been doing unbroken through time back to the beginning of recorded paper colonial history. It's something that has been, that has existed for tens of thousands of years in oral history. It was an incredibly powerful, humbling, inspiring practice to learn about, to learn about the strength and the power of these women. And I would have to say the most rewarding part about writing Esther was the opportunity it gave me to meet and connect with women from the Aboriginal community in Lutruwita who were so generous with their time and worked with me as sensitivity readers to make sure that any representation of Karnalaritja and their culture in the novel was appropriate and accurate. Now, I wondered very briefly before we wind up, if you could tell me more about the Binalong Bay sculpture and why it was important to this story. I can't wait to see it, by I, the way. <laughs> send me a photo. I will. <laughs> in the very first iterations of, of Esther, which was research into the Scandinavian parts of the novel, I found the sculpture of Copaconan, which is the Faroese uh, seal woman sculpture that is 11 and a half metres tall and is installed. I tweaked the timing. I took poetic license in the novel with when it was installed, but all that's in the author note. In reality, it was installed in 2014 just outside of the village of Mikla Delore because the Selkie stories are so important to the pharaohs. And Copacronin was installed there facing the village where it was said that a fisherman had come to the shore and stolen the seal woman's skin and refused to give it back to her for seven years. And this is the general telling that Selkie fairy tales and myths tell. So the stature of this, and you can see it, there's a photograph of it in the novel, she's skin number five, the fifth skin. And the stature of this woman is, you know, she is, she is naked, so she's sort of natural with one leg still in her seal skin and she's holding that seal skin in one hand and then the other leg and arm are free and it looks as though she has just at 11 and a half feet tall climbed out of the sea onto this outcrop of black basalt rock and she is facing the village where this fisherman is said to have come from when he stole her skin. So the side note to that is there are different feelings in the furrows about how people feel about which way she's facing. 
some she's facing the village as a warning to say, do not take what is not yours to take. Other people, particularly women in the pharaohs, feel like she is placed facing the wrong way and she should be facing the sea. She should be facing her country and her kin that she was prevented from returning to when the fishermen stole her skin. All of this is to say that this sculpture and representation of the feminine is very strong. Even in her nakedness, you know, it's not the kind of nakedness that was perhaps 19th century, we could never have clothes on, our boobs always had to be out while we were eating fruit kind of, you know, art. Her nakedness was purposeful. Her nakedness was natural. So there is so much strength in the sculpture. That is to give context. That was in my head, very much in my head and very visual. And that is to give context then to how it felt a couple of years later because I think I first saw a photo of the sculpture in 2017 and then I travelled to La Truissa, Tasmania for my very first visit at the beginning of 2020. So I had Copaconan, the, the image of Copaconan as a sculpture in my mind so strongly from having stared at it and I had a framed photo of it on my writing desk wall to turning up in Larapuna, the Bay of Fires, near Binalong Bay, And driving through Binalong Bay and looking up, and here is a sculpture of a woman in a bikini with her legs, presumably it is meant to be that her legs are in the sea. The sea is made of stone. She has no feet. She's in a bikini. Her hair is kind of blowing. And my jaw dropped the first time I saw it because of the context of comparison that was in my mind from having sat for so long in my imagination with Copaconan and then how incredible it was that she didn't have feet in this sculpture and that she was perpetually in a bikini, which meant that she'd been given clothing but all she got was a bikini. And her purpose was to stand there She looks young, you know, young in a bikini, and her purpose is to stand there with a sign carved into the stone saying, welcome to Binalong Bay. And I, there is not anything that I could find out about the origins of the sculpture. The the closest thing I could find was on a travel blog saying that, you know, there were rumours that maybe it was based off a surfer, a surfer's girlfriend in the 60s or 70s. That was the closest I came to getting any info about it but the role that it plays in Esther and Aura's life that's the beautiful thing about fiction is that sculpture is a piece of art its purpose is for interpretation and the way that that sculpture was interpreted through the fiction of Esther and Aura is Esther suffers a little bit of claustrophobia and she hates the sculpture because she can't ever see the woman's feet And it was an example of the sisterly bond between Esther and Aura when they were young and teenagers. And Aura tried to teach Esther the art of psychological reframing, like what would happen if the Benelong Bay girl could raise her sword and had a cape on, a cloak. It was a beautiful image to be able to mirror and play off both in their relationship and also with the art of the sculpture in Copaconan in the Pharaohs.
Holly, I wondered, given that everything that's happened in your world in the last five years, if there was something that you know now that you wished you'd known before Lost Flowers was published. There are so many things, Claudine. My goodness. I think the biggest thing is that your inner critic is never telling you the truth about yourself. Your inner critic is constantly coming up with justified reasons for why you shouldn't try. Because if you try, you are vulnerable. If you try, you are at risk. And the inner critic's job is to keep you from feeling at risk. And so they will be as arsehole-ish as they need to be, those voices of that inner critic, to just stop you from being bigger than small. And I, the power, though, that the inner critic has is not to ever be discarded or discredited but on the flip side we do have the ability to cultivate our inner fan our inner fan is like the very best sports mum that wears free hugs on her t-shirt and brings snacks for everyone and hugs every kid who doesn't have family that shows up to support them that's our inner fan and she is cheering for you relentlessly you just have to give her a microphone so that she gets some airtime to drown out the inner critic because she's got good lungs the other thing I would say that I have learned is to not be so afraid of who you are and what you love and I speak about this specifically in the context of writing write whatever you love write what it is that's sets your skin on goosebump fire without shame of it being torn apart or laughed at or criticised. Because if you write what you love and what makes you feel like you're just burning up inside with joy and geek high, like find that inner plane travelling filming lover and write with that conviction yeah. Of that, you know, a plain guy, 73, who uploads his plain videos to YouTube. Find that inner version of yourself yeah. and write from that place. Because when I write what I love without succumbing to fear of being labelled too emotional, too soft, too sensitive, which are things I've all been, I've been shamed for and bullied for in my past, that is how stories live. And what greater gift and power do we have than offering that, than offering a story that lives for somebody else to take into themselves and read to life? I think those are two things I didn't know. I did not know. And that's what writing has transformed in me. Thank you so much for sharing that with us. Beautiful questions. Thank you for giving me the chance. Holly. What an honour it's been for me to chat with you again today. The Seven Skins of Esther Wilding is another unforgettable, beautifully written story that I will cherish. Thank you for joining me on Talking Aussie Books today. Thank you so much for having me, Claudine, and thank you for everything you do to support and encourage readers and writers. That's a wrap, folks. If you enjoyed this podcast episode, please drop me a line via my webpage at claudinetanellis.com, via Instagram, Facebook or Twitter. Alternatively, consider leaving a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or Google Podcasts. Until next time, happy reading.